I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about new grants, denials, and oral arguments, and we'll interview one of our favorite appellate judges, Bill Pryor. So the Supreme Court heard a few oral arguments this week, including on a day when the rest of the federal government was closed because of a snowstorm. Some people even went over to the court's grounds and built a snowman, but the police made them move frosty. I was sad to see that. I thought it was Olaf. Okay, yeah. I did see on Twitter people were having a, a field day with this, and somebody tweeted something about, in the case of Anna versus Elsa, <laughs> Olaf lost, I guess. Sad. Yeah, very sad. Um, but earlier, Elizabeth was at the court this week to listen to oral argument in Nifla versus Becerra. So tell us what happened. Sure. So this is the case brought by pro-life crisis pregnancy centers in California challenging two parts of a state law. Uh, the, f- the first part requires centers that perform ultrasounds and pregnancy tests and other things like that, uh, requires them to advertise the state's free abortion services. The second part of the law deals with centers that provide non-medical services like counseling and parenting classes. Uh, the law requires them to include in their ads a 29-word disclaimer that they are not licensed to practice medicine. Apparently, it takes a lot more words than just that to, to get the state's message out. Uh, but here's the kicker. The disclaimer has to be the same size as the rest of the ad, so it's the opposite of fine print. And it has to be included in up to 13 different languages, depending on what county you're in. It's got to be a crazy big ad. Yeah, one of the amicus briefs actually had uh, like a full page as a sample ad to show what it what it looked like in all the different languages. And anyway, yeah, it, it really uh, makes the ads pretty pretty large. Uh, so at the argument, a lot of the justices were skeptical of the state. Even some of the liberal justices asked tough questions of the state's lawyer. So Justice Ginsburg called the requirement to include the disclaimer in 13 languages very burdensome. And the state's lawyer, Deputy Solicitor General Joshua Klein, admitted that this requirement might be unconstitutional. Uh, Never a good thing to do when you're at the Supreme Court. (laughs) But he said that a senator would need to bring a lawsuit and provide evidence. Justice Kennedy retorted, You want me to remand this to tell the court what a billboard is? (laughs) Uh, The attorney for the pregnancy centers, Mike Ferris of Alliance Defending Freedom, summed up these requirements pretty well. He said, think of a Chevrolet ad where the disclaimer about financing had to be as big or bigger than the word Chevrolet. That's not an effort to inform people. That's an effort to clutter the ad and drown out the message. So Justice Kennedy asked about what if there's a billboard that says choose life? Would the center have to include in, you know, billboard size font uh, a disclaimer in the same size? He said, it seems to me that this is an undue burden and should suffice to invalidate the statute. Justice Sonia Sotomayor conducted a little outside-the-record research of her own by looking at the website for one of these clinics. Uh, This did not draw the ire of Chief Justice Roberts, although Kennedy prefaced a later question by saying, well, I didn't go outside the record to look on the Internet because I don't think we should do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I just love to picture, you know, Justice Kennedy on, on a computer you know, looking at anything on the internet, that, that, that's an entertaining image. Anyway, so Justice Sotomayor wanted to know if the non-medical, non-medical centers were misleading women by masquerading as medical facilities. She said one of them, you know, had a woman who dr- looked like she was dressed up like a nurse, and that could be misleading. Uh, but Mike Ferris, the, the lawyer for the centers, pointed out that state law already makes it illegal, uh, that kind of behavior illegal, and that the states, uh, if they are, in fact, you know, trying to mislead women, and that the state's lawyer 
um, later acknowledged that California had not brought any charges against these centers for fraud, although he said the city of San Francisco may have done so. Uh, Justice Sam Alito brought up the number of exemptions in the law, so doctors in private practice, general medical clinics, and many other facilities don't have to post the state's notice about the free abortion services. Alito said that while the, the law appeared to be neutral on its face, the number of exemptions uncovered a strange pattern, and that could amount to intentional discrimination against the pro-life centers. He said uh, one of the amicus briefs estimates that 98% of locations that have to post the notice are pro-life centers. The, the state's lawyer said that that wasn't accurate, but the state didn't have a firm number. And finally, Justice Stephen Breyer uh, kept using the phrase sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander throughout the argument. I think it was the catchphrase of the argument, <laughs> noting that in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the court had allowed a state to require doctors to provide informed consent before performing an abortion. So why not let California and other pro-choice states require centers like these to advertise for abortion? He said that this would be, in his view, even handed and it would keep the sauce the same. Uh, but the lawyer for the center said, uh, Mike Ferris said that that would politicize the practice of medicine. I think this is likely to be one of those decisions we'll be waiting for uh, towards the end of the term. So we'll be looking for a decision uh, by the end of June. Indeed. The court also heard Sveen versus Mellon. So this is not a thrilling case on its facts, <laughs> but it could be very important since it gives the court an opportunity to revive one of the Constitution's lost clauses, the contract clause. So the issue in this case is whether the application of a revocation upon divorce statute violates the contract clause. So here's the basic rundown. Mark Sveen bought a life insurance plan and named his wife Kay Mellon as the beneficiary, and then they got a divorce. But before they got a divorce, Minnesota passed a law saying that a divorce would revoke beneficiary designations. So when Sveen died without changing his beneficiaries, Mellon sought to collect the policy proceeds. But Sveen's children claimed that they were the rightful beneficiaries. So the district court retroactively applied Minnesota's revocation upon divorce law, which meant that the children won. But then the Eighth Circuit reversed, holding that the retroactive application of the law violates the contract clause. Now, the contract clause states that no state shall pass any law impairing the obligation of contracts. This clause was passed um, initially to prevent state legislatures from passing debt relief measures that infringed on contracts. But over the last 75 years, the court has essentially gutted the clause and given quite a bit of deference to state laws that impinge on private contracts. And the court hasn't taken a contract clause case in almost 25 years. So while the court could decide this case on other grounds, including existing precedent, I think the respondents here are hoping that the court will revive the contract clause. After all, James Madison referred to it as a constitutional bulwark in favor of personal security and private rights. So we, we shall see. <laughs> so the court released three opinions this week, but to spare you from boredom, we're not going to talk about them. Because they're very, very boring. Yes. Um, moving on to the orders list, the court granted cert in one new case, Nielsen versus Priop, dealing with the federal government's power to detain foreign nationals convicted of crimes after they were released from prison. The government lost here at the Ninth Circuit, and the justices will hear this case next term. Most noteworthy from the orders uh, are three cases the co court won't hear. We talked about two of them in our last episode, and I predicted that there were justices working on dissents from denial of cert. 
So Tiffany, tell us about the first one. Yes, and you were right. So unfortunately, our or seminal rock deference lives another day. (laughs) The court declined to hear Garco Construction, one of the cases we talked about last week, which asked the court explicitly to overturn the doctrine that gives great deference to agency interpretation of their own regulations. Um, But Justice Thomas issued a dissent from denial, and Justice Gorsuch joined him writing that this would have been an ideal case to reconsider those cases that allow the same agency that promulgated a regulation to change the meaning of that regulation at its discretion. Thomas called the doctrine a constitutionally suspect because it transfers the judge's exercise of interpretive judgment to the agency, which is not properly constituted to exercise the judicial power. And he also said, by all accounts, seminal rock deference is on its last gasp. So while we hoped that this would um, <laughs> this would be it, we will unfortunately have to wait another term. The court also announced that for now it will not entertain a constitutional challenge to the death penalty. It declined to hear Hidalgo versus Arizona, which we talked about previously. Justice Breyer wrote a statement respecting the denial, which was joined by Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Breyer says that the state court misapplied applicable precedent, but he believes the Supreme Court was right to turn down this case because the record was not sufficiently developed. Finally, the court also declined to hear Brewer versus Arizona Dream Act Coalition, which was a case dealing with whether Arizona could refuse to give driver's licenses to DACA recipients. So in this case, the Arizona Department of Transportation director determined that DACA recipients do not qualify as having presence authorized under federal law, which is a requirement under state law to get a driver's license, um, because they said DACA is not a federal law and does not confer authorized status. But plaintiffs in this case challenged that determination as a violation of the Equal Protection and Supremacy Clauses, and they won in the Ninth Circuit on equal protection grounds. Some commenters think the court just didn't want to get involved in this divisive issue, um, which I tend to agree with. So we recently spoke with Judge Bill Pryor. We're pleased to have Judge William Pryor with us today. He's a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eleventh Circuit. Judge Pryor, welcome to SCOTUS 101. It's great to be here. So you've worked in private practice as attorney general of the state of Alabama, as an appeals court judge, a member of the U.S. Sentencing Commission, and as a law professor. What has been your favorite job? I've liked a lot of those jobs, but um, being a federal circuit judge is my dream job. Uh, <laughs> when I finished um, law school, I, I clerked for a federal judge uh for Judge John Minor Wisdom of the Fifth Circuit, and I thought then, first job out of law school, I thought, wow, if I could ever be a federal circuit judge, that that would be a really great job. <laughs> and I think, I think though, being a law clerk before that might have been my favorite. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's great. Um, but we hear you didn't always plan on becoming a lawyer and that you were a skilled timpanist entering college uh-huh. as a music major. So what made you change paths, and do you still play any instruments? Well, I'll, I'll start with the last first. Uh, I don't play timpani any longer. Uh, it's not like you can have a set in the basement. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're pretty big and uh, pretty expensive, too. Uh, yeah, so my, my father was a high school band director at our Catholic high school in Mobile. And uh, when I was in about, I don't know, third, fourth grade, I woke up Christmas morning and I did not remember asking Santa Claus for drumsticks and a drum pad and um, a method book, but that was my Christmas <laughs> present that year. And um, and and so I pursued um, percussion as a as a 
you know, an avocation at least for a long time, and then went to college originally as a, as a music major and loved it. But I I really thought I would probably end up as a music educator. And one of the frustrating things I saw my father experienced as a music educator, and he was a phenomenal music uh, educator. I have a brother who's a band director, but so many friends of our family who I watched is that it's hard to get the students to ever love it as much as you will. (laughs) Uh, And I thought I would find that frustrating. And my other loves were always in um, history, government, writing, uh, English, and throughout high school and as I started college, I thought law was a, a real possible vocation for me. And my freshman year of college um, was 1980, and I volunteered uh, with the college Republicans to work on President Reagan's pres- first presidential winning you know, campaign. And, um, and I think that at the end of that year, I changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> what a time to get into politics. Uh, so as you mentioned, you clerked for, for Judge uh, Minor Wisdom, John Minor Wisdom, who was one of the Fifth Circuit Four, a group of judges who advanced the civil rights movement and the law. Tell us what it was like clerking for him, and what was the most important thing you learned from your judge? Well, I learned so many things from uh, Judge Wisdom. It was a, really a great experience. Um, he's had a remarkable uh, group of law clerks. Senator Lamar Alexander was uh, one of Judge Wisdom's law clerks. There's um, The first of his law clerks is a, a federal district judge in New Orleans, uh, Judge Marty Feldman, mm-hmm. who served on the FISA court as well. He was just a terrific judge. So many, really outstanding judges and one of the first things you experience as a wisdom clerk is becoming a member of the um, wisdom law clerk family uh, and you're immediately accepted into the family you're, you're you have the experience of of dining with the judge and uh and his spouse at their home uh, monthly probably uh when i was clerking for him uh and uh I think I learned a lot from that experience about how to treat my law clerks, uh, how to be a good mentor to my law clerks about the close, the intimate really relationship that you can have uh, with your law clerks and, and the network that you can help build for them with other clerks as they um, help each other out in their careers. Um, one of my favorite parts of being a federal circuit judge is working with my law clerks. That's that's probably my favorite part. And I learned a lot about that from Judge Wisdom. Judge Wisdom was also a fabulous writer. I love working a wisdom quote into (laughs) an opinion when I can, when I can do it. um, Just had an opinion in in a desegregation case involving Jefferson County, County, Alabama. And it was remarkable to me that here I was, um, dealing with that case, which Judge Wisdom had written the en banc opinion for the Fifth Circuit, the former, the old Fifth Circuit, back in the 1966, 67, um, that, in that time range, and he regarded it as his most important opinion, and it was remarkable to me that the case was still going on, and, <laughs> yeah. and I was having to <laughs> grapple with it as a circuit judge. Um, but I, I learned a lot about writing, I learned a lot about how to work with law clerks, um, and um, and how to enjoy life too, outside the law, because um, Judge Wisdom really valued that 
um, and as law clerks. Later in your career, when you served as Attorney General of Alabama, you made headlines for prosecuting Roy Moore, who at the time was the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. Uh, Moore had disobeyed a federal court order to remove a Ten Commandments monument from the state courthouse. And now some conservatives were upset with you, arguing that there was a moral duty to acknowledge God and that disobeying the court order was the proper thing to do. Can you tell us about your response to them? Well, there's a lot to say in response <laughs> to that. I've, I think there can be a rare occasion when a judge faces a conflict of moral and legal duty happily in the American experience. I think that's an extremely rare uh, event. Uh, but we have a moral obligation to follow the law, uh, even when we disagree with the law, of course. Um, that's what the rule of law is about. It binds all of us, uh, whether we agree with it or not, because no one is above the law. And uh, it was not a difficult call for me um, to understand that when a lawsuit was filed against Chief, then Chief Justice Moore and he had an opportunity to make his arguments in defense of his monument in the Alabama State Judicial Building, and he had a trial, and the district court ruled against him. He had an appeal, and the Court of Appeals ruled against him. He had the opportunity to petition the Supreme Court for certiorari, um, and that was denied. See, I think that if people can't understand why the judge as a party to that lawsuit who had had those opportunities to make his arguments, why he was bound to obey an injunction entered against him in the same way that he would expect or any judge would expect that any ordinary citizen who's had their case resolved before the courts would be bound to obey the court orders, whether it's parents in a child custody dispute whether it's an injured worker whose case against his employer or some big corporation for a workplace injury or, you know, a will contest, whatever the case might be, uh, the rule of law demands that at the end of the day when cases are resolved, the parties will accept the rulings and we would certainly expect the highest judicial officer of a state to understand after he's had the opportunity to make his argument that he too is bound to obey um, the court's ruling. And and as, as insofar as a moral obligation is concerned, the moral obligation is to follow the law. That that That's our moral obligation. Um, I, I thought I, I had a duty as a Christian um, to obey. Uh, the court order and to see that to it that it was obeyed and um, I've, I must have missed the part of the older New Testaments that, that that demanded that we build a monument of the Ten Commandments and put it in a state judicial building. Uh, <laughs> uh, it seems quintessentially to me that um, a question about how to decorate Caesar's courthouse is a question for Caesar. <laughs> so turning to your career as a judge, you've written that your faith informs your duty as a judge, but that religion should not be applied as a source of authority in judging. So tell us how you manage conflicts between your faith and your duty as a judge. I can't say that I've really had one of those conflicts because, again, um, this is 
it's a happy experience to be a, <laughs> um, a federal circuit judge. Um, in the American ex- experience, that you don't face the same dilemma that you might had you been a judge in, say, Nazi Germany or in communist China, where your um, your obligation might be to enforce um, an evil or you know truly immoral or unjust law. Um, and I had haven't had the, the responsibility that that Judge Wisdom was um, participated in help dismantling with something like a regime like segregation, uh, where um, state judges were routinely um, enforcing you know what were clearly unjust laws uh, at that time. Uh, so, uh, in the event that that you had that kind of conflict, um, you'd have to really ask yourself. Is this going to be a recurring problem such that um, I'm not able to both honor my duty to my moral conscience and my duty to the law, the duty uh, that I swore I would do when I took the oath of office so that I would have to resign? Or um, in, or is it more of a, of a infrequent occurrence where I might recuse myself? from a, an unusual case that might present that kind of dilemma. But, um, but I haven't had that dilemma, you know, um, you know, some, some judges, you know, encounter difficulties perhaps with something like capital punishment. Um, when you're a federal appellate judge in cases of capital punishment, the decision whether to enter a sentence of death is a decision that has already been made, by a state government and has been reviewed by state courts. And by the time it comes to you as a federal judge, your role is to evaluate whether um, that sentence would in some way violate federal law. But you're not really evaluating the justness of that 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 um, punishment, nor are you evaluating uh, whether it should have been entered. Um, that, that Those are um, more difficult questions and maybe closer questions for some trial judges, but not the kind of moral dilemma uh, for a federal appellate judge. You've talked about Robert Bold's play about Sir Thomas More, A Man for All Seasons, and how More's commitment to the law can serve as a model for lawyers and judges. Can you expand on this? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know how many people really are familiar with just what um, – St. Thomas More faced in um, his his difficulties with uh, King Henry VIII and and the kinds of decisions he tried to make to be both, both faithful to what he regarded as his judicial or lawful duty and his his duty um, to his moral conscience. But when when Parliament passed. The act of succession and made Anne Boleyn's children uh, successors to the crown, Thomas More knew that he could swear to the act of succession because it was the law of the land. He could swear that um, that her children would be successors to the crown. Uh, that did not fa- you know, present the kind of moral and uh, conflict um, that would that would require him. Um, to disobey the law, um, it was only when the, when Parliament passed the Act of Supremacy that made the king supreme over the church um, that 
St. Thomas More, uh, you know, could not take that oath um, and could not swear to that act. But even then, what he tried to do, of course, was to remain silent um, and not not um, not to criticize, not to speak out against what the um, the king was doing. He was trying to be both faithful to his conscience and faithful to his um, to his legal duty, um, and and to use his wits. Um, you know, he he recognized that uh, that God expects us to use our wits and and to try to be observant to um, the authorities here on earth that um, that are established for our own good uh, and um, to the higher authority um, that to which we all owe allegiance. So shifting gears a little bit, we've spoken with a lot of former law clerks about their experiences, in, including your former clerk, Albert Lynn. We had a great discussion with him. One of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> we'll tell him you said that. Uh, we'd love to hear from a judge's perspective, what lessons do you hope that your clerks will take away from their time in your chambers? I think they learned two lessons immediately. One is how much they don't yet know. <laughs> uh, when they come to clerk uh, for a court like ours, the 11th Circuit has a pretty heavy caseload, and we see a wide variety of cases. Um, and the judges of our court have to be real generalist um, in an era where lawyers are specialists. Um, but the, the my law clerks learn how much they don't yet know uh, as they grapple with <laughs> with all the cases that come before us and they really dig it and they they know that I expect them to learn an area that they probably know nothing about uh, and to really uh, do their best to master it. Um, and so they immediately learn that lesson. I think the second thing, though, that they learn almost immediately is that despite the fact that they have so much more yet to learn, they should be encouraged by the unfortunate amount of bad lawyering that they see <laughs> uh, to know that they're already kind of a step ahead of many others who've been practicing far longer. Uh, the law clerks who, uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work with are very talented and, uh, and you know, smart uh, individuals. And, uh, and they already know an awful lot particularly for their age, and, and they have a lot of promise uh, as lawyers. And I, I think they see a lot of bad lawyering, a lot of things that they can learn lessons from of what not to do, uh, in addition to seeing some very fine lawyering. So uh, I think those are the immediate <laughs> lessons. <laughs> Is there anything uh, you particularly like to do with your clerks? We, we've heard about how Justice Thomas takes all of his clerks to Gettysburg at the end of each term. So do you have any sort of pilgrimage like that? Uh, we've had a few different pilgrimages, uh, some of which, you know, I've got to admit, are more idiosyncratic and maybe not quite as patriotic as what Justice <laughs> Thomas does. I like to take my law clerks to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, uh, to football games at Bryant-Denny <laughs> Stadium. Uh, I've taken them to Paul Bear Bryant's museum. Uh, I've taken them to Coach Saban's office and to the, <laughs> the locker room in Bryant-Denny Stadium. And, and uh, we have... We have a lot of barbecue uh, when uh, I work with my clerks. Um, Monday is kind of a standing uh, barbecue lunch in our chambers. Um, nice. But but there there have been occasions, 
when we've gone to Montgomery, uh, where our court hears oral argument, and we'll um, and I've showed them, I've showed them the courtroom where I prosecuted Chief Justice Moore. I've showed them, <laughs> I've showed them the um, steps of the Alabama State Capitol um, where um, Jefferson Davis took the oath, where uh, where you know. Attorney General uh, of the United States came to meet with Governor Governor Wallace at the height of the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, I've showed him where Dr. King's first church, where he was pastor, where they the room where they organized the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, so um, we've had we've had some you know more patriotic lessons too. Just outside the um, our courthouse, at my window overlooks Kelly Ingram Park which is where um, the Birmingham police used uh, the fire hoses and German shepherds on the um, teenage civil rights demonstrators and the 16th Street Baptist Church, which was bombed by members of the Ku Klux Klan, you know, 50 years ago. And some of those bombers I helped prosecute while I was attorney general. You know, I, I try to teach them those lessons, too. That's great. So you also played a role in the originalism revolution when, as a student at Tulane Law School, you invited then-Attorney General Ed Meese to give a speech. Um, Can you tell us about that experience? Uh, That's almost right. So what (laughs) um, Attorney General Meese had agreed to accept an invitation of the university to give a speech on the bicentennial of the Constitution. And I had helped uh, start... This is back in the early 1980s. I had helped start a new chapter of the Federalist Society at Tulane, uh, and we invited Attorney General Meese uh, to have a reception before he gave his speech for the university later that evening. And um, the, 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 the fun backstory is that he agreed to do that months ahead of time, and then when members of the state bar and the uh, Tulane alumni and, and the New Orleans Bar and other groups in town, you know, wanted to host a similar reception and were told by his office that he, he was having a reception at the law school with the Federalist Society. <laughs> uh, the call started coming in to the dean of the law school, who's the Federalist Society and uh, and, and who do they think they are, uh, you know, monopolizing the attorney general's time. Um the, the dean of the law school called us in and told us that he would host the reception and that um, that we could we could send our officers and he was going to invite all these various groups who wanted to host the attorney general. We told him that we'd be happy for him to host the reception, to pay for the food and, the, and have an open bar and to invite representatives of those groups, but that all the members of the society would attend, not just the officers. And if he didn't like it, we were going to take it up with Attorney General Meese <laughs> and let him decide. And uh, he, the, the dean folded like an accordion, and, uh, and he, we, he knew we had called his bluff. And, and then Attorney General uh, Meese at that reception really paid special attention to our group and to our students and and talked about um, his hopes for us. Um, Steve Calabresi was with him on that trip, uh, the founder of the Federalist Society at Yale. And um, and then later that evening, um, Attorney General Meese gave a speech about the law of the Constitution and the difference between the Constitution itself and, con- and constitutional law, the importance of understanding that it's the Constitution that's the supreme law 
and not necessarily always what the Supreme Court says about it, um, that, that although the decisions of the Supreme Court are entitled to great respect, at the end of the day, the court can and has gotten it wrong in important instances. And if their decisions were truly the supreme law of the land, the court wouldn't be able to overrule itself. And we know that in, in important instances, um, instances that were important to the progress of our constitutional republic, the court has overruled itself. You know, decisions like Plessy versus Ferguson were uh, overruled. And, and uh, it was it was really uh, important um, and um, fun, you know, event <laughs> with the attorney general that evening. Yeah. So to quote uh, Justice Elena Kagan from her con- confirmation hearing, we're all originalists now. So why do you think originalism has spread like wildfire over the last 30 years? Um, and do you have any must-read book recommendations for law students or uh, young lawyers interested in or- originalism? Why do I think that it has spread like wildfire? I, you know, I think the um, the natural appeal of respecting the work, the text of the Constitution, as it was understood when it was adopted, is is one that really harkens to seventh grade civics. Uh, I, I think Americans intuitively understand that what made one of the things that really made our constitutional republic different was that we established our most fundamental law in writing, um, and there's there's a significance to that. We 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 have a written constitution, just as we have written statutes, other written laws, um, because we we suppose that people understand what the words mean and that they will be bound by them. That that is fundamental. Uh, to the rule of law. So, you know, I, I think that um, the appeal of originalism is just the intuitive appeal of um, our written constitution and uh, its development as part of the development of the rule of law in the Anglo-American tradition. Uh, and, um, and, you know, as far as reading material, um, you know, I, I think law students should read uh, a matter of interpretation by Justice Scalia. Um, I think they should also read his later book, Reading Law, um, that he co-authored with Brian Garner. I teach a, a seminar on textualism every year, one in the fall at the University of Alabama and the spring at Samford, and I use Reading Law as, as the main reading material uh, with my students. You can read, though, um, the, the the book that was put together by the Federalist Society about the you know t- quarter century of debate about originalism that um is a, a terrific collection um but but you know I'd say a matter of interpretation reading law uh, for law students especially that that's uh, a way a great way to get introduced um, to originalism and textualism. So one final question that we ask all of our guests here at SCOTUS One Hundred and One. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Well, it might sound um, like a cliche, but I would really like to talk with Chief Justice John Marshall about Marbury. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, I, I think it's one of the decisions that 
um, is perhaps most misunderstood in American history. There are a lot of myths surrounding Marbury. I would like to confirm what I believe are myths truly are myths. <laughs> um, I don't believe, for, exa- for example, that Chief Justice Marshall thought that it was important to establish a precedent uh, for judicial review because judicial review uh, was a relatively uncontroversial proposition at the time. Uh, and the Marshall Court never cited Marbury for the proposition of, of judicial review. Uh, the next time the court struck down a federal law, an infamous decision, Dred Scott, uh, when the Missouri Compromise was declared unconstitutional, the court did not cite Marbury. Um, I would like to know from him uh, what it was like to preside in, in Marbury versus Madison when the Jefferson administration had refused to allow the Attorney General of the United States, Levi Lincoln, to appear on its behalf uh, because they had such little respect for the court's authority uh, and how, in in many ways, uh, Chief Justice Marshall had to be almost the adversary for William Marbury's lawyer, who was the former Attorney General of the United States, um, Charles Lee, uh, and it was it, it seemed that it was really Marshall's idea to question the court's jurisdiction in, in that matter. Uh, so there are all these myth, myths surrounding Marbury that I would just, I could talk all day uh, <laughs> with with Chief Justice Marshall about um, and, and, and hear what he really had to say about the case. Well, that sounds like that would be a great conversation. Well, Judge, thanks so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia where I'm going to try to stump Elizabeth. Before we start, I wanted to recommend a a Twitter account to our listeners. If you're interested in Supreme Court history and trivia, follow uh, Sheldon Gilbert of the Institute for Justice. He tweets really entertaining things under the hashtag courting history. uh, So I highly recommend it. And now I'm ready for trivia. Okay, (laughs) let's do it. First question. When Washington, D.C. became the seat of government, Congress provided that the Supreme Court could use a room in the Capitol. But early on, there was a lot of construction that prevented the court from meeting there. So the question is, what type of establishment did the court sometimes meet at during this time? What type of establishment? Yes. I don't know. Did they meet at a saloon? Yeah, they (laughs) met at the bar, um, along with a few private residences, which aren't as fun. But in 1909, they frequently met at Long's Tavern. And I I tried to look it up. I don't think it exists anymore, but if any listeners know where, or it, where was. it was, yeah. um, that would be great to know. We can make a pilgrimage. <laughs> yes. And after the British burned the capital, it met at another bar called Bell's Tavern. <laughs> um, I think they should they should start doing that again. That would be fun. Yeah. Uh, maybe have conference there. <laughs> okay. Second Wouldn't question. be a secret. <laughs> <laughs> um, who was the architect of the Supreme Court? You know his name. I do. Oh, um, I can't think of what his name is he also he, did the uh he did some some of the monuments in dc he has a similar name to the person that you just were talking about gilbert who is gilbert yes, <laughs> yes. it was cass, cass gilbert yes oh cass yes exactly <gasps> he was a great american architect from ohio who studied architecture at mit and he designed numerous buildings around the country including 
um, various state capitol buildings, museums, and libraries. But he died before the court was completed, which was sad. Mm. Okay, third question. What is the person called who chants, Oye, 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 when the justices enter the courtroom? Isn't that one of the marshals? No, but that's not their, yes, but that's not their name when they do this. Oh, like the person who chants has a special, yeah, has a special a title. Yeah, I don't know. They're called the court crier. Oh, I've heard that before. Yes, and appointing yeah. a court crier was one of the very first things the Supreme Court did in its first term. So criers in English courts performed various ceremonial functions, and the court obviously maintained that tradition. Now the marshal or the deputy acts as the crier when they're not <laughs> dealing with secret indictments, as <laughs> Louise Mensch uh, would, would say. Um, but Congress later authorized criers for district and circuit courts as well. But there aren't many today because, according to the Federal Judicial Center, judges prefer to use those funds to hire law clerks and secretaries. <laughs> OK, number four. Which early president was nominated and confirmed to the court while he was out of the country and then rejected his appointment? I want to say Jefferson. I feel like it's Adams or Jefferson. Yeah, um, it is John Quincy Adams. Oh, ooh. So, yeah, I, was, so I was close. <laughs> I had no idea that this happened. But James Madison nominated him, and he was confirmed while on a diplomatic mission to Russia. Um, but he rejected the nomination. It's like, nah. <laughs> um, Hard pass. It took Madison four attempts to fill that seat. Two confirmed appointees declined the position, and then the third was rejected by the Senate. But the bonus question is, who was the fourth nominee and eventual justice for that seat? Melville Fuller. <laughs> no, it's Joseph Story. Oh. He was the fourth pick. For Man, Joseph and Story. what a pick. You know, he, I was, know. he was really a, a great one. I know. Okay, final question. Which state bar urged the nomination of their chancellor to the Supreme Court in order to get rid of him? <laughs> Which state bar... Could you give me, like, maybe a, um, a a part of a century that this occurred in? It was it was pretty early on. Pretty early on. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go with Virginia. No. It New York? Was, yes, it was uh. New York. So members of the state bar pressed hard to get Reuben Walworth confirmed to the court because they hated him. <laughs> so President and President John Tyler nominated him three times to the same seat, but the Senate refused to give him a vote. And according to Justice Brennan, I got most of these from a law review Justice Brennan wrote. Um, I'll read the, the paragraph about this. His rejection was puzzling at first because every prominent leader of the New York bar had strongly endorsed the nomination. <laughs> but the reason at length came to light. One of the prominent New York lawyers wrote his senator urging confirmation. He told the senator that all of the New York bar are anxious to get rid of a querulous, disagreeable, unpopular chancellor. Uh, though the man was mild enough in private, on the bench he was highly unconventional and frequently harassed counsel with pointed interrogation and biting sarcasm. And having failed to elevate him out of state, the New York bar resorted in desperation to a more drastic remedy. They induced the New York legislature to abolish the position of chancellor. <laughs> uh, those are pretty extreme measures um, of judicial reform to get rid of a guy. <laughs> those were those were tough questions, but good good trivia yeah, in there. I, I think you did a good job. 
Well, thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. And you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org. 